Morning. Sasan, hello, hello, hello. Morning. That means it's time to stop talking. How's everybody? Um, I'm good, thanks. Ooh, hot mic, hot mic. Am I good? Uh, good morning. My name is Gary Anderson. Uh, thanks for your patience. I'm doing the, um, the Granny White East uh, Triathlon this morning. Um, so I am the new pastor at uh, the Granny White Congregation. Uh, got here in November of last year. Spent the last nine months, eight and a half months studying and getting ordained in the PCA. And then a couple weeks ago we had a big uh, transition service over at Granny White. And so I'm now the new lead pastor at Granny White. Uh, it is... Uh, that was totally unnecessary, but I will take it. So thank you. Um, I have heard a lot about you. I love your pastor. Brant and I have gotten to be great friends. I think he is one of the finest guys I know. Uh, I love your staff. I know I'm, I'm telling you something you already know, but you are in a really good spot if you are here for church. If you're visiting this morning, this is a really good spot. And if you are visiting or new this morning, the regular preacher here is much better than what you're about to experience. So just know that. Come back and hear him. Um, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to dive into uh, the text for this week. So pray with me. God, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for this time. We thank you so much that you have seen fit to allow us to gather here in your house uh, to worship you and then also to hear from you. And so we pray, God, that as we turn now to your word, that you would open our hearts to receive, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear what you would have for us. Uh, and God, we ask that we would not leave this place unchanged. Uh, because we have had an encounter with the living God. We love you uh, and we ask that you would help us to love you more. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in uh, Revelation chapter 5 this morning. Um, that is the trajectory of the outline that all of Midtown is doing. But you guys just need to know, full disclosure, two weeks ago when you all did part of chapter 5, we did our transition service at Granny White. And so we didn't preach chapter 5. And so while most of Midtown is just doing the last few verses of chapter 5, we're going to do the whole thing because that's what Granny White got this morning. And <laughs> I couldn't do two different sermons. So uh, some of it will be review. But Revelation chapter 5 is like maybe the most critical chapter in the whole book. And so it's not going to hurt any of us for, to hang out here for a little bit longer than maybe was planned in the outline. So if you have a Bible, meet me in Revelation chapter 5. Uh, we are going to read the whole thing. Starting at verse 1, it says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." 
And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can I ask you what, um, what well, I'm just going to tell you. I asked in the, the back at Granny White, I was like, what is one of the most overused or misappropriately used uh, words in our language? And someone in the front row goes, bro. And I was like, oh, I feel very convicted in this moment because I use bro a lot. Uh, but that is not the word I was thinking of. I think one of the most misused words uh, in our kind of day-to-day vernacular is unbelievable. We use it all the time, and mostly this is convicting because I use it all the time. Uh, if anyone saw that Ohio State-Notre Dame game last night, I'm from Ohio. Go, go Buckeyes. No, all right. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, when um, one of our kids gets sick while we're on vacation. Unbelievable. Uh, when we get dumped by someone that we really liked. Unbelievable. When we lose a job that we didn't want to lose. It's unbelievable. When we are in a doctor's office and we hear a word or a diagnosis that we never thought we would hear, it's unbelievable. Those things are not really unbelievable because what does unbelievable mean? Can't be true. It's not believable. What are they? They're just hard to believe. And we throw unbelievable on top of it. Now, here's the deal. That cuts both ways because there are a lot of things in life that we call unbelievable that are not bad things but are great things. Like flip side of that might be some of you in here might have a job that is like joyful and fulfilling and life-giving and you get up like you can't believe they pay you to do it. If that's you, we would love to hear about that sometime. You might say that's unbelievable. Some of you in here might be like, I had dreamed one day that I might have a spouse and the person that I am married to is better than I could have ever imagined. I got some hands up. You might say, unbelievable. Some of you might look at your life right now and you're like, based on where I came from, when I look in the rearview mirror of my life and I see what it was, where I grew up, where I came from, the trajectory that it was on, when you look at your life right now, you might be thinking to yourself, this is, this is unbelievable. But here's the deal, same deal. Even with those good things, it's not that they're unbelievable. It's just that they're hard to believe. And that is why I am so excited to have the opportunity to preach about Revelation chapter 5 today. Because Revelation chapter 5, as one scholar says, you cannot understand the rest of the book of Revelation unless you understand the vision that John gets in chapter 5. And on its surface, everything about it we're going to want to say is unbelievable. But the beauty and the amazing truth of what we believe here at Midtown Fellowship is that it's not that it's unbelievable. It's just that it's hard to believe. But when we come to the place that we believe it, it changes everything about everything. So uh, as we come to Revelation chapter 5, I just want to help us get a little bit of context and then we're going to dive into what I want us to draw out of it. So starting in chapter 1, 
We're uh, in uh, John. We believe it's the beloved disciple John. He's in his uh, old age. He's exiled on the island of Patmos, which is a prison island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Jesus comes and visits him, gives him a vision, says, I have something I want you to send to the seven churches. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3 are the messages to those seven churches. But as we've talked about a lot, or at least I have, and I'm assuming you all here have as well, those seven churches, seven is the number of perfection. So Revelation is not just a letter or not just a revelation to seven individual churches. It's a revelation to all the churches. It's for all of us, all of Jesus Christ's church for all time. Revelation chapter 4, John gets a vision of the throne room. He's invited into the heavenly throne room. He is in God's throne room, sees God the Father on the throne, elders, creatures. If you haven't read it, go back and do it this afternoon. It's awesome and totally weird, but it's awesome. And he catches a vision of this worship of God the Father in heaven. And that's what brings us to chapter 5. We're still in the heavenly throne room. And John sees God the Father and he sees what in his right hand? He sees a scroll. So meet me back in the text. Uh, Revelation 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, we're not exactly sure what was written on the scroll, but we can make a pretty good inference based on the context and the rest of the book of Revelation. The scroll was uh, representative of God's plan for creation. It is, as one scholar says, it is God's achievement. It is what his plan and purpose is for the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world and that one day his plan is to redeem and reconcile all that sin has messed up and destroyed on the kingdom of earth and to bring God's kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth and engulf it such that all is made new and we'll get there at the end of the book and it's beautiful. That's what the scroll represents. What happens in verse 2? A strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And what is the answer from all of creation? What is, actually, what's that question asking? Who can achieve God's purpose? Who can achieve God's plan? Who is able to bring the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth? And what is the answer in verse 3? No one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Uh, the, the, the strong angel says, who can achieve God's purpose? And what is the answer from all of creation? Crickets. Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. And what happens in verse 4? And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I think that this is one of the most poignant scenes, not only in Revelation, but in all of Scripture. John begins to weep. The, the Greek says, weep bitterly because no one is found who can bring God's kingdom to earth. Who was John? This is like so critical for us to understand this. Who was John? He was the beloved disciple. He, most scholars believe he was the beloved disciple. That means he was in Jesus' like inner top three of disciples who he spent the most time with. He spent three years of his life traveling with Jesus, doing ministry with Jesus, not watching it, experiencing it. He saw Jesus uh, heal the sick. Uh, uh, give sight to the blind, walk on water. He saw Jesus crucified, dead, buried, raised, ascended into heaven. Before he went, he said, don't worry, I'm going to come back soon. And now here's John, 60 years later. We believe Jesus ascended to heaven in the 8030s. We believe Revelation was written in the 8090s. And it feels hopeless. In that 60 years, what has he seen? Suffering, 
pain, frustration, disappointment. Here he is as an old man. He has been exiled to a prison island where he's probably like, this is where my life ends. He is seeing his friends suffering or being killed because they follow Jesus. He's seeing the churches that he planted suffering. He is thinking 60 years ago, Jesus said, I'm coming back soon. And here I am 60 years later and it feels worse than it did then. And there's no sign that he's coming back soon. And here he is in the heavenly throne room. He is standing in front of the presence of God the Father and someone says, is anyone able to do what God's purpose is? And the answer is no one and he begins to lose it. Why? And this is my first point of the message. Because the gospel is hard to believe. Because the gospel is hard to believe. We're just, we're just going to keep it real because scripture keeps it real. He he above, like almost anybody, in that moment when the angel is like, who's worthy to open this scroll, what should John have been like? Oh, Jesus, like my good buddy, I know him, I walked with him. Like, oh, Jesus can open the scroll. But here he is in the presence of God and he's like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this isn't, maybe, maybe God is not as powerful as I thought he was. Maybe, maybe sin and frustration and sadness and disappointment and brokenness, maybe they ultimately win. Maybe God's kingdom will not be brought to earth and he begins to weep. Have you ever heard a grown man weep bitterly? One of the most unsettling experiences you'll have. When a grown man weeps bitterly, that means that all is lost. Or at least it feels like all is lost. Those are life-defining moments when a grown man weeps bitterly. And here is, here is John in the presence of God the Father. He knows the right answer. He knows the story of the gospel. And yet he still in that moment is so overwhelmed by hopelessness and doubt that he, that he forgets. He, he has a hard time believing that the gospel is true. Because the gospel is hard to believe. Uh, my freshman year in college, I went to school in the Chicago area, a school called Wheaton College. Uh, I grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area. So I drove um, 80 between Chicago, I-80 between Chicago and Cleveland hundreds of times. My freshman year, Christmas break, I'm leaving after my last exam for Christmas break. Uh, and as I'm pulling out of the Chicago suburbs, kind of skirting around the city, the snow starts to come down. The year is 2000, so there are no iPhones, there's no weather app, there's no nothing like that. And the snow just gets heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. By the time I hit the Indiana border, it is a full-blown blizzard. Like, got to stay in the little lines made in the snow by the trucks that are in front of us, in front of me, excuse me, I'm by myself. Uh, my 91 Chevy Cavalier was not really built for that kind of driving. Um, and as I'm on I-80 in the Gary, Indiana area, which I don't know if it still is, but at that time was one of the most dangerous stretches of highway in the whole country, more accidents there than almost any other place. Uh, all of a sudden the lights in my car start to flicker, the check engine and the battery light come on and it starts to shudder. And I'm like, this sucker is gonna die. And so I pull off onto the shoulder literally as my car shuts off. And I'm, again, I'm a freshman in college. I'm, I'm like 18. I'm a child. I, I, I shouldn't have been allowed to drive. I just, I don't, I'm not supposed to be alone in the middle of nowhere in a blizzard by myself with no cell phone and no nothing. And I kid you not, as my car dies, as I roll to a stop on the side of the road, there's an Indiana State Trooper uh, in his car 10 feet in front of me. And he had pulled somebody over or was doing something for somebody else. And that car is leaving. And he gets out of his car and he comes back to me and he's mad. I think he's like, what's this knucklehead doing pulling over in this blizzard? And I think when I rolled down the window and he saw the fear in my face, it, like he calmed down. And I told him what happened. And he was like, everything changed. And he was like, don't worry, buddy. 
I got you. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. And he goes, he goes, but I got to go to the bathroom. This is true. I'm not like being, that's not potty humor. It's like, this is how the story goes. So just chill out. He's like, I got to go to the bathroom. So he's like, I'm going to go out to the next exit and go to the bathroom and I will come back for you. He's like, don't go anywhere. I'm like, where, where am I going to go? <laughs> and so he leaves. But remember, my car is dead. And so there's no heat. There's no nothing. It's a blizzard. Within a minute, I'm in this little encased uh, igloo because there's so much snow. I can't see out of it. The trucks are flying by at 60 miles an hour. Uh, it starts to get really cold. Um, he wasn't the only one who had to go to the bathroom. And it, it was probably like 15 minutes, but it felt like three hours that I was in that little coffin sitting there on the side of the road. And I'm telling you what, really quickly the doubts started to creep in of like, is he really going to come back? Because he may just like, his shift may be over and he just goes and goes home. Maybe I need to go to the bathroom means I'm going home to my family. And I was like, if he doesn't come back, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm starting to run through all these scenarios of do I get out and try and walk to the next exit? Do I get out and try and flag somebody down? And right at the moment, literally, that I was like, I can't take this anymore. I got to go try and figure out how to get help. I can see through the snow in my back window the flashing lights of a squad car, and, and there he is. I lost hope so fast. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, have you ever been there? Ha have you ever lost hope? Have you ever doubted? Have you ever wondered if the things that you think are true, probably for a lot of us, myself included, the things that we are like foundational bedrock, the things that we have built our life upon, have you ever wondered if you're wrong about them? Have you ever thought that maybe this whole deal is too unbelievable? Have you ever wondered like in the deepest part of your heart and soul if this isn't real, if it's too unbelievable to be real. If you have, can I just say to you this morning, welcome to the club. Come on in, the water is fine. Because here is John, the beloved disciple who spent three years with Jesus, saw stuff that he's the one in his gospel said, if all the things that Jesus had ever done were put in, the book, in books, the whole world couldn't contain them. And here he is in the presence of God, vision of God the Father, and he is doubting that it is all true. Why? Because if we just keep it real, the gospel is hard to believe. And if Midtown Fellowship ever becomes a place where we are not willing to walk with those who are doubting and wrestling and struggling in their faith, I will tap out as fast as possible because that is not the heart of God. I believe God himself is like, I welcome it. Because you just go read the Psalms and you will see over and over again evidence of people who were doubting and struggling and wrestling with their faith. So the first thing I want us to draw out of Revelation chapter 5, this picture of John losing him, his mind in the presence of God is this. Sometimes it is hard to believe that the gospel is real. And here's the second thing I want us to see. Drawing out like on top of that why the gospel is hard to believe because it's upside down. The gospel is hard to believe because it is upside down. So continue now with me uh, in, the, in the text. So uh, moving on to verse 5. So here's John weeping bitterly. 
And verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And we just need to pause there for a second because John and all the good uh, Jewish people who are reading this and hearing about John's revelation who know their Old Testament, when they hear lion of the tribe of Judah and root of David, what is the picture that comes into their mind? The promised Messiah who is going to be like King David from King David's line. King David was the greatest king in Israel's history and how did David rule the nation of Israel relative to its enemies and the nations around it? He dominated them. Every one of Israel's enemies, David subdued. He was a man of war. He was a militaristic king. He presided over Israel's greatest season as a nation. They were the premier nation on earth. And so when God began to promise under David's reign that one day a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ will come and he will be from the line of David, everyone began to assume that means he's going to rule like David. He's going to come and he's going to do some business when he comes. Messiah is going to knock you out when he gets here because that's the kind of king that David was and that's the kind of Messiah that we're looking for. So when John hears that, John's like, all right, here we go. This is the one who can open the scroll. But then, verse 6, I know a little bit of this is review. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw what? A lamb. In the Greek, it's little lamb. Standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Here's there's a lion sees there's a lamb. That is the upside down gospel. How did Jesus conquer? Jesus conquered by dying. Jesus didn't conquer by coming in and dominating all of his enemies. Jesus conquered by coming in and taking the the sin and hurt and the anger and the frustration of his enemies onto himself. Bruce Metzger, New Testament scholar, says this. Instead of a ferocious lion that hurts others, The Messiah is a sacrificial lamb that takes into himself the hurts of others. Instead of a ferocious lion that hurts others, the Messiah is a sacrificial lamb that takes into himself the hurts of others. That seems unbelievable. That seems unbelievable that that the all-knowing, all-powerful, King of kings, Lord of lords, God of creation, that the way that he comes and, and... and inaugurates his kingdom on earth is not through power, force, domination, destroying of his enemies. It is by suffering and dying on a cross. And for those of us who are like, that doesn't seem like the way I would have made it up if I was in charge. Like, that's the point. That is why the gospel is so hard to believe. It's because it's upside down. Here it is. It's because it seems like it's too good to be true. Every couple of weeks, uh, I get an email, and I think uh, I can say with probably a fair amount of confidence that you all get a similar email every couple of weeks too. It comes from an accountant in Brussels who uh, is uh, working with a very wealthy philanthropist in Africa who has at random decided to give away $10 million to five people. And I have been selected as one of those five people to receive a $10 million inheritance. And every time I get that email, can I just, can I just be honest with you? I, I, for like 30 or 60 seconds, I just let myself bathe in what if this was real? What the, the joy, like I know money's the root of all evil, all, all that stuff. The joy that that would bring me. What that would, seriously, what that would do for my life. 
what it would mean for my mortgage, what it would mean for the kind of car that I drive, what it would mean for my children and for their education and for their future. And then after about 60 seconds, I got to cut myself off and, and come back to reality. Why? why? Why do I have to do that? We all know this. Because why? Because something that feels like it is too good to be true probably is. Right? Y'all get those emails too, don't you? And you wish it was real too. Come on. That's why the gospel is hard to believe. Because it feels like it is too good to be true. Here, here's what Revelation 5 is, is telling us. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I don't have this in my notes, so I'm going to botch the quote. I'm just going to, uh, like, get the idea. It's from Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says, uh, mankind is not an imperfect creature that needs to be improved. He says, mankind is an open rebel who needs to lay down his arms. See, what the Bible teaches and what C.S. Lewis is saying there in Mere Christianity is not that we just are a little bit messed up and we just need God to clean us up a little bit and then we'll be good to go. What the message of Scripture is, is that because of sin, we are in open rebellion against the true king. And, and, and our, our coming to him is not in that, hey, can you just kind of like improve me a little bit? It is we need to lay down our arms and surrender. And the message of the gospel is that the King of kings and Lord of lords looks, looks at us in our sin and our rebellion and our disobedience and all of that. And instead of saying, you know what, I'm just going to wipe you out and start over. Or instead of saying, you know what, you just figure it out on your own and when you get your act together, you come to me. No, the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God is not clean yourself up and then I will see if you are acceptable to me. It is come to me as you are and I will clean you up. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he sees us as is, he loves us as is, he saves us as is, but he does not leave us as is. And here's how much that costs us. Nothing. I mean, it costs us a lot because it costs us our life, but it's, a, it's free. We don't have to, like, preamble to the Ten Commandments. God doesn't say, um, I will give you the Ten Commandments, let's see how you do with them, and then if you do good enough, I'll take you up out of slavery. He says, I am the God who rescued you from slavery. Here are my commands, now walk in them. Simply in grateful obedience to what I have already done to you. And that seems too unbelievable for us. The message of the gospel seems unbelievable. But here's the deal. I and a bunch of other people in this room would say with um, all the confidence that we can muster, I have staked my life on the belief that it is real. And when that becomes real to us, when the, when the truth of, of the... When the truth of the gospel that the savior of the world is not a ferocious lion who has come to destroy his enemies, but he is a little lamb who takes the hurts of his enemies onto himself. When that becomes real, this is the third thing I want us to see in this passage. Our primary response is worship. Our primary response is worship. I wanted to say our only response is worship, but that's not true because we're, we're grateful and we're thankful and we're humbled and we're changed and all that stuff. But when the truth of the unbelievable gospel becomes believable to us, our highest, first, and primary response is worship. And that is exactly what we see in the rest of Revelation chapter 5. Let's just walk through the rest of it as quickly as we can. Uh, verse 7. The little lamb who is Jesus went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. In Greek it says they threw themselves down. Happens again in verse 14. Fell down before the lamb. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, 
worthy are you to take the scroll? And then they keep singing, skip forward with me to verse 11. And then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads. That literally means 10,000 by 10,000, but all it is is hyperbole, saying a number greater than anyone could ever count. And what are they saying? Verse 12, the same thing that the elders and the creatures are worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So it's the creatures and the elders, and then it moves outward to the angels. And then we go further out. Verse 13, I heard every creature and heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worship. When the reality that the little Lamb is the one who is worthy to take the scroll uh, becomes apparent, what happens? It's like an atomic bomb goes off in the throne room of God and the reverberations just continue to vibrate outward from the throne. The, the creatures and the elders and then the angels and then all of creation begins worshiping the lamb. And the picture that is painted here is not restrained, thoughtful, uh, let's make sure we're on the right beat and the worship music gets started first before we get into this. This is an embodied guttural response that the unbelievable gospel is actually true. Uh, one scholar says this about this scene in the second half of chapter 5. Uh, this is Robert Mounts. He says, nowhere else in the literature of worship will one find a scene of such unrestrained, unrestrained praise and adoration. With the handling of the scroll, with the handing of the scroll to the Lamb, we enter into one of the greatest scenes of universal adoration anywhere recorded. What happens when the unbelievable gospel becomes believable? All of creation explodes into worship because it is the primary response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I grew up in church. My grandfather was a pastor. Uh, we went to his church for a little while until we moved away. He preached in a robe. Uh, we had an organ. We sang worship songs from a hymn book. And for uh, most of my childhood, that was kind of the type of worship experience I was used to in churches. And so when I got to my young adults, and please hear me say, I love hymns. Love, love, love hymns. This is not, when I go, where you see where we're going from here, don't be like, well, he said I don't like hymns. That's not at all what I'm saying. Love hymns. When I got into my young adult years, I had kind of this, um, this bias or this skepticism to kind of emotional worship. Like, like hymns were right, worship songs were a little bit, you know, like, eh, that's not, is that really worship? And like, if people are like, you know, why are we doing Frisbees in church? I don't know, is that, do we really need to open our hands and do that? And, and I thought when people put their hands up in church, I was like, why are we drawing attention to ourselves? And that feels like emotionalism. And I just, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, i I was from the chosen frozen, and so that's how I was used to worship, and that's kind of what I thought, that's how I thought it should be. And so this is probably like 10 years ago now. I was at a concert with my brother, uh, probably my favorite band. They're not a Christian band, but I, they're Christians in the band. And we got gr a great spot right down front, standing room only. They're ripping through their set, and they get to one of my favorite songs. And I go, like, I, I raise my hands, like, I can't even, I don't even know why I'm doing it. I'm just so into the music. I'm so into the concert. I put both my hands up. 
And I sounded like that child. And in the moment, in the moment, I'm telling you, like my whole view of worship changed in that moment. Because I wasn't worshiping that band. There just was something in me that wanted to physically respond to what was happening. And if I was like, if I can do this at a, at a rock and roll concert, how much more can and should I do this in the presence of the living God? Here's the deal. We were created to worship. It is not something we do that we kind of tack on to the side. We got, God made us as worshipers. Uh, I think it was John Calvin said one time, our hearts are little idol factories. And I love that and it's true. But I would also say our hearts are little worship factories. Because we were, we were designed and we were created. It's what we were made to do. And it is why we are so willing to throw ourselves down, proverbially, in front of all kinds of lesser things. I mean, you, there, there are grown men and women who will act in a certain way at a football game that they would never act in any other sphere of society. Also at their kids' soccer game. Also, I'm, I'm just, let's keep it real. If Taylor Swift walked in here right now, there would be some embodied physical responses to what was happening. And so listen, this is not at all a, so we need to be better worshipers. That's not it at all. You worship in the way that God has led you to worship. But here's what it is. If the gospel is true, if it is really real, if there is a little lamb who was slain and he is the one who is worthy to open the scroll, if he is the one who is able to fulfill God's purpose for all of creation, if there is a king of kings sitting on a throne right now in heaven with elders and angels and creatures worshiping him day and night in this moment, when we join with them in worship, here it is, every once in a while, I think it might be all right just to let it rip. Just, just let it go. Because my guess is there's someone in here today who's like, yeah, I kind of, I can identify with that. Like, I don't want people to look at, like, it, he is the king of kings and lord of lords and he is worthy. And, and sometimes it's going to be all right just to show him that he is worthy. That word worthy, it means heavy. It means weighty. It's comparative. It means that it, it brings down the scale. And the little lamb is the one who is worthy of our worship. And we will give it to lesser things because we are designed to worship. We are created to worship. But, but every once in a while, don't be afraid to let it rip when you are worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, we'll go home on this. One of my favorite uh, stories in all of Scripture, it's found in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. John the Baptist is in prison. And uh, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus. Do you remember what he asks his disciples to ask Jesus? He says, ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? You know what John the Baptist was asking in that moment? Are you worthy? Are, are, you heavy, are you weighty enough? Are you the one or should we look for another? And what is so mind-blowing about that question is, is, is where John the Baptist is coming from. So John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. When Jesus was in Mary's womb and she visited Elizabeth, who was John's mother, the Bible tells us that John leapt in his mother's womb at the presence of Jesus coming into his presence. 
John the Baptist is the one who saw Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is the one who baptized Jesus. And when he did, God the Father spoke audibly from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended like a dove onto Jesus. And here's John the Baptist a few years later. He's in prison. He may or may not know it, but he's not getting out of prison with his life. He is feeling hopeless. He is feeling fearful. He is like, this is not the Messiah that I was expecting. And he's doubting. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the one or should we look for another? And do you remember what Jesus says to his disciples to take back to John? He says, you tell John this. You tell him what you see in here. He says the blind receive their light, their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the poor have good news preached to them. What was he saying to John? Don't let your circumstances cloud your vision of the shore. Don't let your present circumstances undermine what you know to be true. Jesus was reframing his reality. And I... I cannot help but wonder, Scripture doesn't tell us how John responded when his disciples came back to him with that news. But I cannot help but wonder, based on the testimony of Revelation chapter 5, if he did not throw himself down on the floor of that prison cell and simply say worthy. Worthy is the lamb. You are worthy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this time and we thank you for your word that is living and that is active and that we believe that you speak to us through it. And so God, I pray that you might encourage our hearts this morning. I don't know what everyone in this room is walking through right now. I don't know what their present circumstances are, but you do. And I pray, God, that in those moments, in those days, weeks, and seasons of life, where we begin to wonder, is this really true? Are you really who you say you are? And are you really going to do what you said you will do? I pray that you would give us the faith. I pray that you would give us the, the wherewithal to lean into what you have shown us in the light, not questioning it in the dark. Thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you for your gospel that, that it seems so unbelievable, but we believe that it is the truest thing in all of creation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.